Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions. When justice gives blind eyes to billions. When the Lord's anger is no longer feared. If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the sea spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high abolitionist radio on the Black Talk Radio Network A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate On the issue of 21st century legalized slavery Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas And Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the July 18th, 2018 live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio on the 100th birthday of Nelson Mandela. In the last two weeks broadcast, respectively, we've connected the dots between immigration policies and for-profit prison giants, Core Civic and GEO. Then last week, we broke down the infamous GEO group from its dark beginnings by a white supremacist FBI agent slash domestic spy to its global impact today as one of the largest global prison profiteers on earth. Today, we follow the money straight to the government officials who are personally investing in for-profit prisons. If lawmakers get rich writing laws friendly to corporate prisons in which they are personally invested. That is a conflict of interest of the highest order. It's an industry built on slavery and genocide. 95 bodies 
Oh, also, we'll be going deep on this story today out of Sugarland, Texas. 95 bodies in a mass grave are determined to be victims of convict leasing. In my opinion, we couldn't have asked for a better crime scene. Everything you could need to prosecute a crime against humanity is right there, and I'll explain shortly. On and near this day in history, on July 18th in the year 64 AD, Nero's Rome burned, proving that in addition to being unable to defeat the Parthians, fire kicked Nero's ass too. So much for a white man's God complex. On July 22nd, 1862, Abraham Lincoln read the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. It's a far different document than what was read in September of that year. We'll read it aloud tonight on air, and it will likely be the first time anyone ever has. And finally, on July 18, 1925, seven months after being released from Landsberg Jail, the genocidal dictator and Nazi leader Adolf Hitler published the first volume of his personal manifesto, Mein Kampf. Dictated by Hitler during his nine-month stay in prison, I'm sure there are Nazi celebrations going on in the U.S. and worldwide right now. In direct action news, a nationwide prison slave labor work strike is being called for on August 21st through September 9th. If you know someone on the inside, tell them what's going on. If you want to help from the outside, contact organizers at Ubuntu at gmail.com. That's I am we, U-B-U-N-T-U, at gmail.com. The Right to Vote campaign needs your support. It's a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. The campaign grew out of the August 21st national prison strike demands, specifically point 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pre-trial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Owen Brown, February 16, 1771 to May 8, 1856. He was the father of abolitionist John Brown. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is Baltimore's Jerome Johnson. He was falsely convicted in a 1998 murder of Aaron Taylor. Johnson was finally exonerated on July 2, 2018 and set free. As always, we have a little time and a lot of information, so be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see it in real time as we talk about the stories. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. Your support is even more crucial today. It's ride or die season. You'll find the links for today's program on our abolitionist planning page, which is available to BTR community members. If you've got a question or a comment, you can call us at 704-802-5056. And you can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, I'm sorry for the delay. Greetings, Max. Uh, how are you tonight? Um, I'm as well as can be, man. But I got to tell you, I'm a little overwhelmed at some of the stuff I found today in my research and in the past week. Uh, amazing. Like, wow. Yeah. Between the two top stories that I mentioned today, that is enough for somebody to wrap their minds around for the next 10 years. Yes. Um, when I saw that Sugarland story and I was telling my mom about it and she, all she could say is this is one evil country. 
and she and she's right, man. And it's just it. I'm beyond being shocked anymore. Whenever we uh, uncover stuff, and then you know the story about the congressman being invested in private prisons is, you know, that's nothing new. We've seen officials and reported on officials before. Uh, being invested, like Alberto Gonzalez, a former attorney general. Um, earlier, you mentioned Jeff Sessions to me. And and unfortunately, it's not illegal for these people to be voting on legislation that is ultimately going to impact the industries that they're invested in. And in this case, the private prison industry. Yeah, you know, uh, that's the thing with crimes against humanity like slavery. The way to get people to just let it go and not fight against it is to use that magic formula called making it legal. Poop. It's all okay now. Just make it legal. Just like they did with those sheriffs who were getting the uh, all the money they didn't spend on the food for the prisoners were keeping in their own bank accounts. And that one sheriff that we talked about a couple weeks ago made three quarters of a million dollars in two freaking years just scraping the money off the, that he was supposed to be feeding prisoners with. And that was all legal. It was all legal. It's all allowed by the law. So one of the things I want to start out with today, Scotty, is the uh, Emancipation Proclamation that was written first. Not the one that we actually got and everybody heard that was, came out on September uh, in September of 1862, I'm talking about the one that he read only to his staff in July 18th of 1862, just a couple months before. And in the wording of it, oh, remember, he was a lawyer, so some of these sentences go on forever. But nonetheless, in the wording of it, you can really see the intent, what it was really all about. And then when you compare the two, you can see how things played out. So I, if you don't mind, Scotty, I'll read that one. We can start the program off with that. After I do read this, if you have a question or a comment, please please press star star to unmute yourself if you're already on the line, and then you can state your question or comments. All right, this came from battlefields.org and it's Abraham Lincoln's draft to the Emancipation Proclamation. When Lincoln felt the time had come to pursue emancipation as a military necessity, he read an initial draft of his proclamation to his cabinet. His advisors was apathetic to the proclamation, or worse, worried that it was too radical. Secretary of State William Seward suggested that Lincoln wait to see to issue the proclamation until a Union victory could prove that the federal government could enforce it. The proclamation was officially released on September 22, 1862, after the Battle of Antietam. But the two months between July and September gave Lincoln the necessary time to revise the proclamation from its original content, which is going to be quoted now. In pursuance of the sixth section of the Act of Congress entitled, An Act to Suppress Insurrection and to Punish Treason and Rebellion, to Seize and Confiscate Property of Rebels and for Other Purposes, approved July 17, 1862, and which Act and the Joint Resolution Explanatory thereof are herewith published. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do hereby proclaim to and warn all persons within the contemplation of said sixth section to cease participating in, aiding, countenancing, or abetting the existing rebellion, 
for any rebellion against the government of the United States and to return to their proper allegiance to the United States on pain of forfeiture and seizures as within and by said sixth section provided. And I hereby make known that it is my purpose upon the next meeting of Congress to again recommend the adoption of a practical measure for tendering pecuniary aid to the free choice or rejection. By the way, I had to look that word up, pecuniary, and it means about money, of any and all states which may then be recognizing and practically sustaining the authority of the United States, and which may then have voluntarily adopted or thereafter may voluntarily adopt gradual abolition of slavery within such state or states that the object is to practically restore thenceforward to be maintained the constitutional relation between the general government and each and all the states wherein the relation is now suspended or disturbed and that for this object the war as it has been will be prosecuted and, and as a fit and necessary military measure for affecting this object I, as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, do order and declare that on the first day of January, in the Lord of our, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or states wherein the constitutional authority of the United States shall not then be practically recognized, submitted to, and maintained, shall then, thenceforward and forever, be free. That was Abraham Lincoln's first Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, I, I really don't have anything. You know, I, I just don't really like that man. Um, I think that I think that um, historians have done a good job at, at whitewashing his image and what have you, but from all the research that I've done, he was really, he's what Martin Luther King called the white moderate, you know. Um, now, somebody told me that Lincoln never claimed to be an abolitionist because I said that he wasn't an abolitionist or he was a so-called abolitionist. I mean, in my reading and interpretation of what I read, he was giving speeches like he was an abolitionist. He was courting the abolitionist uh, vote, but again, the word that stuck out to me uh, was gradual. That's a moderate. That That's not an abolitionist. That's a moderate. It, it, in his words in the, that we have read in the past, he was like, hey, I, my, my whole thing is keeping the union together whether with or without slavery, it doesn't really matter to me. So, I mean, I really, I'm really not shocked by anything that I read. Yeah, he took advantage of the situation. Uh, what was occurring during that time was the rumblings and the bubblings of a rebellion. And that a rebellion re erupted in the uh, form of the Civil War. He just happened to be the man who was the president at that time. And he tried to manage it as best as possible. And he even stated clearly that if he could end the war without freeing one slave, he would do that. So he was just, really, it was just in a political movement uh, and trying to go with the already revolutionary flow that was occurring within his uh, nation that he was running. So, yeah, 
And he also, as you said, Scotty, this man was a deceiver from the beginning. You know, he was a racist white supremacist, which he himself has admitted to. And the only reason that he had anything to do with slavery was because allegedly he didn't like slavery. Uh, he said at one point that if anybody approves of slavery, should have it practiced on them to see how they like it. And uh, B, uh, <clears throat> he was really representing what was coming to be at that time, where people wanted freedom. It was a lot of hypocrisy going on, like, but real, a lot of hypocrisy. Scotty? Like Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson and his hypocrisy, for instance, right? How he talked about slavery being a bad thing and how, you know, the country was doomed if there is such a thing as a god. But at the same time, he was raping Sally Hemming when she was 14 years old. You know, he was making babies by his enslaved uh, he was making baby by raping the woman he had enslaved when she was only 16 years old. And I've had this conversation a number of times, and it's thanks to the information that you provided to me, Scotty, that some of the first uh, discussions on capitalism in the United States of America was in the writings of Thomas Jefferson, where he was talking about how women were a much more profitable property to own, black women, African women, uh, than men, because they could continue to make more slaves for you. Right. Um, now, again, going back to the dispute or the disagreement, it's not really a dispute that I had or dis yeah, it's a disagreement over whether or not Abraham Lincoln was uh, putting himself out there as an abolitionist. This person contends that he was not an abolitionist. And of course, I was in agreement that he wasn't an abolitionist, but he put himself out there. Now, the Civil War did not start, or the rumblings of, of this Civil War rebellion of the Southern states did not occur until his election. In his letters to Stevens, uh, Congressman Stevens of Georgia, where he's telling the guy, hey, please tell your fellow slavers that I do not intend to interfere with you and your property and, you know, I, the only thing that I'm saying is, hey, slavery shouldn't expand to the new territories that we ripping off from Native Americans and, and what have you, and and you think that it should. So, I mean, apparently the Southerners at that time certainly believed he was an abolitionist about abolishing slavery. But, again, in his letters, you know, and if you study his private letters, and you scrutinize his actions like Frederick Douglass did in calling the emancipation, the one that was issued a stupendous fraud, then, you know, you wouldn't refer to Lincoln as an abolitionist. He, he certainly was not. You know, it's really a, a short uh, quote that Lincoln wrote to uh, Justice Stevens. If you want, we could read it aloud so everybody can know what it says. It's really clear about where Lincoln stood. And, uh, yeah, if it you have it, go ahead and read it. Sure. It's in a private letter, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Springfield, Illinois, December 22nd, 1860. It was two years before he issued that first proclamation. It says, for your eyes only, Honorable A.H. Stevens, my dear sir, your obliging answer to my short note is just received, and for which please accept my thanks. I fully appreciate the present peril the country is in, and the weight of responsibility on me. Do the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves? 
If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend, and still I hope not an enemy, that there is no cause for such fears. The South would be in no more danger in this respect than it was in the days of Washington. I suppose, however, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. It certainly is the only substantial difference between us. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. So when he says we, who is he, ta- who is he talking about? He represented the union. He had just mentioned that right before that. I understand the responsibility on me. He was speaking as the representative for the entire union. You know, when he says we think it ought to be restricted, he wasn't talking as an abolitionist. I mean, the abolitionist wanted to abolish, not restrict it. So he was representing, and, and let's not make any mistakes, all Northerners also did not care if slavery continued or not. You would find more abolitionists in the North than the South, but, but um, you know, a lot of them, they weren't abolitionists and what have you, but they did believe in the Union, so to speak. Max? Um, indeed, Scotty, I'm sorry, I didn't hear your last comment. Uh, I, I was uh, taking care of something real quick. Were you just passing the uh, the mic to me, so to speak? Yes. Okay. Well, <clears throat> we already covered that part of history. Let's move on to our top story today, and let's talk about uh, this congressman Gian Gianfort, who brought private prison stock as the Trump immigration policy boosted its, its profits. I mean, he was right there, front row seat. He knows it's going up, and he's got the lobbyists that are coming to tell him that these contracts are coming into play. So, as a congressman, he thought that it was a Good idea to invest as much as a hundred thousand or more into uh, for-profit prison st- stocks. The uh, core civic, to be specific, and uh, I'll read the story coming as a uh, investigation from the Young Turks is where I first read it, and it says Representative Greg Gianfort, Republican out of Montana, in a police photo at his booking last year on assault charges, and that's the image that they show us, and it you're not uh, familiar, last year he assaulted, I think he body slammed a reporter in the House uh, of Congress and it was all caught on film and he ended up going uh, to court and jail I believe for that. In any case, to continue by Alex, Alex Koch the second richest member of Congress made a six figure purchase earlier this year of stock in a major private prison company that's profiting handsomely from increased immigration detention under Trump administration policy. Federal records show. And it says Representative Greg Gianfort bought between $100,000 and one cents and $250,000 worth of core civic stocks on January 29th. According to a transcript transaction report reviewed by the Young Turks, one month earlier, Gianfort had unloaded core civic stock in the same value range. And they show these three purchases here. Uh, one on January 29th, 2018, for over 100 and up to 250000 And one on another one on January the 29th uh, for the same amount. And then a third on January 29th for fifteen to 50000 So we're talking uh, as much as half a million dollars 
invested personally by this congressman in a private prison corporation while he's serving as a legislator. Scotty? I I suspect that he's not the only one. Um, he's just been the only one that has been uncovered by this uh, investigation. But I, I suspect that, uh, no, because again, every, every Congress member from what I've heard, and I've heard it from credible sources more than one time, every member of Congress is a millionaire, is, is worth a, at least $1 million, if not more. And then when I see, and, and this isn't, again, longtime listeners and people who know me know I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, don't put the label of conservative or liberal on me, just don't do that. But when you have members of both party parties who increase their wealth, while they're so-called public servants, I think Nancy Pelosi is like also up there in terms of her personal wealth and what have you. And I think her husband has been called out for investing in stuff, you know, that she has uh, voted on and what have you. So, you know, I was doing some research before the program for this and in 2012, Barack Obama signed into law something called the Stock Act. I think it was the Stock Act of 2012, something like that. But to me, it was nothing but symbolism. It was like, okay, you can't do any kind of insider trading. Um, and so I guess, you know, that's pertaining to some of the, the mergers that might come before Congress, you know, closed door sessions, and they get information about possible mergers that may happen or may not happen or they got a pulse on if it'll be approved by the Justice Department or or whoever controls that. Um, and then they invest in court accordingly. And I think, and, but it doesn't disallow them from investing in stock. I think that if you're going to be a public servant, be a public servant. You shouldn't, I, I think you should be prohibited from investing in any kind of industry that's awarded government contracts. So that that would definitely apply to private prisons, um, whether it's any kind of healthcare companies, as I was reading about this other uh, congressperson who, who uh, was under scrutiny because he made a whole bunch of of uh, investments related to healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies that that he then voted on legislation that would benefit those companies. So I think that it might be a good idea, but I, I doubt uh, if you can get it passed in Congress again. You know, that's like the police policing themselves. You know what I'm saying? So of course they're not going to pass any meaningful legislation that's going to prohibit them from enriching themselves while working as public servants. Max? Right. Well, Scotty, you know, uh, we have reported before here that during the year, the decade of two, from 2002 to 2012, these for-profit private industries had spent over $40 million just lobbying Congress. $40 million, which was a, a, a big investment for them because they got a return now of, uh, I don't know, seven, eight, twelve billion $12 billion in that area. And just recently, we discussed here 
where in Alabama, just to show you, this ain't no chump change we're talking about. They were negotiating and uh, they had signed over a $360 million contract just for health care within the prisons of Alabama. This is just for health care, $360 million um, for Alabama, which, you know, the health care that they're receiving is completely inadequate. In certain places, they're not even giving people cures to hepatitis C. The last uh, report I read is like 140,000 people right now with hepatitis C in prison that could be cured but will not be cured because allegedly the cost of uh, the treatment is somewhere around sixty to $90,000. So I guess they've got death sentences sitting in these prisons that are spending $360 million in no-bid contracts for uh, just for that state uh, prisons health care. So Imagine, as Scotty, we played here a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, the video of Alabama legislators talking about how they were going to use this money that was coming in, this $800 million into Alabama, how they were going to use it to create jobs and build more prisons. Now, imagine if those same people who were talking, these legislators, these elected officials, are also invested in the same prisons that they're promoting on building. I mean, anybody out there listening, you, you could, I mean, you could see where that's unethical, right? Where well, well Max, here, here's the thing, though. They were talking about building public prisons that were, you know, under the uh, Alabama Department of Corrections. So you can't invest in nothing like that. That's not on the stock. That's not on the stock market. Now, if they were talking about taking that money and and then contracting, like you remember when the Supreme... You don't invest in the prison, Scotty. You invest in the company that provides the health care. And that's how you get that. Okay, okay. All right, got you. But remember remember when California was ordered to reduce its overpopulation? Uh, It was suggested that they let nonviolent, you know... um, people in prison that's in there for victimless crimes, whether that's like drugs. 4,000, right? Yeah. And instead of letting them go, California, and this is, again, Kamala Harris, who has been mentioned as a contender for the Democratic nomination in 2020, and she needs to answer these questions. Uh, and her office argued to the SCOTUS that, hey, we can't let them go. We'll deplete ourselves of this cheap labor. And they didn't let them go. They the way they complied with the SCOTUS order to reduce, um, you know, the population was to then contract with the GEO group, and we actually, you know, got advance notice of that by listening in on the GEO group's uh, earnings calls. But yeah, we heard all about the Florida uh, contracts, the Texas contracts. We heard about the California contracts. They were basically guaranteeing this money was going to come in four to eight years before it actually occurred. Now, while they weren't naming specific states or what have you, because that would have been illegal to do, but they were given enough hints. You know what I'm saying? They they were talking in code, but it was easy to decipher the code and know exactly what they were talking about. And so, so, um, but here's another thing, though. That's why that bill to ban prisons, the Justice uh, is Not For Sale Act of 2016 was... You know, I I was really, really, really hoping that that was going to get passed. And I hope it gets reintroduced. But now there's this thing about, okay, these politicians 
not accepting money from private prisons. In that article, um, let me pull it back up. In that article, it talks about this guy, uh, what's his name, Gio Forte. It talks about him then getting donations to his reelection campaign from CoreCivic, a company that, again, you know, he's invested in and what have you. So, so you know, people were talking about um, um, pledges like the Democratic Party now is claiming that it won't take corporate donations and what have you. I think that's something that should be demanded of every politician, that you shouldn't, you know, accept any lobbying gifts. You All of that should be eliminated, man, because basically what we got is a pay-to-play system that we keep hearing about. And, but nobody wants to actually do anything meaningful about it. So, you know, now, there are certain Americans that say, hey, we shouldn't care about them locking up all these refugees. It doesn't matter what the United States is doing in their home countries to destabilize those countries and make them unsafe to live in and what have you. And it has nothing to do with us. Well, that's because you're not looking at the big picture. That's because you're not looking at the tangled web that is modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Now, we had, and I've mentioned her several times over the past few weeks, the, the, um, the black uh, woman who, the black candidate who was running for San Diego County District Attorney. Genevieve Jones-Wright. Yeah, Genevieve Jones-Wright. And she called on the Republican to reject donations from the GEO group, which, of course, you know, the Republican Party, uh, that county party wasn't going to do it. They gladly accepted that money. And so I'm saying the money that is being pumped into their to their war chest is then going to be used to elect more people like that. And so, you know, that's the that's the intersectionality that some people are not seeing. Hey, uh, Scotty, I want to play the video from the Young Turks and let them speak more about what they learn on there. Uh, it's about five minutes long. We don't have to listen to the whole thing. Stop it whenever you want to. And after that, if we got a few people who want to call or have any comments, feel free to get in on that. What do you I think, I think Scotty? we do got a caller uh, from area code 803. Oh, and one more thing. I want to give a shout-out to Otis Griffin because he was the first one to point out to me this story from the Young Turks. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, state your name and where you're calling from. Your question or comment? Hey, you guys. Um, it's it's uh, hey, brother Scotty. Hey, brother Max. Uh, this is Greg. Uh, in South Carolina. Long time. Welcome home, bro. Yeah, been too long. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, what you're talking about essentially is the is the uh, the core question of the corruption of our in, of humanity. Um, because uh, across the planet, what we've done is we've allowed the the lure of money and power to turn us from loving, caring human beings into money-grubbing sons of bitches who are willing to sell out our children to make a profit for ourselves, for, to buy things that we don't need to make us feel better about ourselves because we're treating each other like garbage. Um, and and they this is it's it's ex- exceptionally deep and it the 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 slavery issue is just it makes it so 
utterly clear our in every home that you stand in the entire economy from the beginning has been based on one group of people using force to make other people work for them for less than they are entitled to and 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 also it, honestly just to the point of saying okay fine at the end of a gun or a spear or a knife or whatever um a club you will work for me and accept whatever i give you period that's it and it's it's um it's horrific and the the manifestation in public policy is something we can do something about and we must do something about if we're going to become human beings again and 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 I look forward to hearing the Young Turks and listening to the rest of the show, but that was just the input I wanted to give on, on what you gentlemen have already touched on. I, I really think that's at the core of all this is just the our our willingness to behave um like like animals instead of like um and I'm not saying we're not animals, but you know, behaving like base animals instead of like the elevated creatures that we are. Right, right. I understand. Thank you very much, man. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, it's been a while, like we said, and you are absolutely right. And it ties into the other lead story that we have today about. Well, before you the, go uh, into Lance, that, Texas. Before you go into that, uh, greetings to you. I, I wasn't going to go into it. Not yet. Oh, I'm sorry, Max. I thought you was about to move on, but I just nah, wanted, nah. I just wanted to point out to people. I was listening uh, to a program on the network earlier today, uh, Tanya Free and and Friends um, Network, and third party was mentioned. You know, uh, there was an acknowledgement that both parties are corrupt, the Republicans and the Democrats, and they don't represent the people, but they represent corporate oligarchs. And, you know, i just like to take this opportunity to plug the Green Party. It is the only party, it, except for individuals like, you know, we had the guy from Alabama, what's his name, on as a guest, who's an abolitionist, who declared on this program he's an abolitionist. Scott? Yes, Scott? Yeah, Scott Brewer. And and then we just got through mentioning Genevieve Jones Wright. Now she's a Democrat. All right. Though and he's a Democrat too, but it's not the DNC. It's like a state Democrat, Democratic, whatever he said the name of it was. But he's running on the Democratic ticket. And but anyway, the Green Party is the only party that I know of that has consistently in most of them have come out of South Carolina where Greg and you are, are, and, you know, have consistently, uh, put forth now, obviously, you know, Greg, you can speak on that. The national party needs to come around, but there have been several green party, uh, candidates for Congress who made abolition a prison slavery, a part of their planks. And I really, really, really think, that that's something that has to be on the table whenever we're in in any of these. If you're a Democrat, okay, I'm not telling you to lead a Democratic Party. It it is what it is. It's corrupt. The emails reveal what they reveal, no matter who revealed them, okay? Uh, But that has to be on the table. That has to be part of their platform. If you're a Republican out there, why don't you, you know, reach back to the abolitionist roots of the Republican Party and Amen. put abolition on the table and make that, you know, a must part of the platform. But I ha- have to say, though, there's I've only come across I've come across more Green Party 
members who are open to abolition and have actually ran on, at, with abolition as part of their plank than any other party in the United States. Greg, did you want to speak to that? Yes, I, I do, Scotty. Thank you very much. And um, But I, I've got to say, I have personally fallen down. I haven't tended to the promises that I made to you, and, um, and I will, and that is to make sure that the Green Party of South Carolina puts this on the national agenda and make sure that it is, uh, that it is, is established as national policy and put into our party platform. Um, I, I, I think, however, that party platforms can also be places where issues go to die. So what we have to do is we have to push it beyond that and say, okay, so what is the action plan to make this happen? Um, also, I want to just encourage anyone out there who's listening who is a member of any political party to make them to make the leadership of that political party at least look at abolition, look at at, at slavery and the. I mean, it's it's in the words in the Thirteenth Amendment. It's not that damned hard, but make sure they see it, make sure they understand it, and and just just ask them. Say, how can we justify standing with slavery? Just explain to me that. And, and if you can give me an, an explanation that makes sense, I'll sit down. But otherwise, and, and what I'm saying is if you're in another political party, push your political party to become an abolitionist party. And, and I'm done. I'm going to stop preaching and <laughs> just continue All listening. Right. Thanks, you guys. Love you. All right. Bye -bye. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Um, we right. got some more callers uh, on the board. Max, did you want to say something before we go to the callers? Uh, no, just go ahead. Let's uh, have our callers get their say. Then, if uh, we still have enough time, we'll listen to the clip, and then okay. we'll go into part two of this conversation. Okay, I'm not sure who was on the board first, as I was looking away from the screen. But I'll go with Jenna uh, first, who's calling us uh, out of Tennessee. Jenna, thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, what's on your mind? Peace and welcome, Jenna. Greetings, Max. Uh, Greeting Scotty and the other caller that just came off of the board. Uh, before I get into anything, uh, I just wanted to get in line after the uh, after the video was played. I, I actually do have some things that I wanted to ask the uh, previous caller, but I want to uh, hold those off until after the uh, video was played. Is that all right? That's fine with me, and I, I understand. Right, thank you. All right, Scotty, we got another caller? Uh, yes, we have Otis on the board. Good evening, gentlemen. How you doing? Calling us Welcome from Virginia. Peace to the abolitionists. How you doing? Peace. I just Peace. wanted to put a little context to what you were saying because we've actually touched on this several times and I just want to make a note. And then I'll... Back in 2011, CBS did their, their veteran correspondents actually did an entire piece on the meeting. 2013, after a, a bunch of rigmarole all through 2012, Obama tried to change the laws and the Republicans overruled him. And basically what it boils down to, it says a few of these congressmen aren't doing their service for salary. All of them say they're doing it to serve the public. But if 
you see the benefits, the power, and the prestige, and the opportunity for Washington to access it's an environment of privilege where the rules that govern the rest of the country don't apply to us. And they more insider trading, everything from health. Otis, oh, you're you're breaking up a lot on us. Is that just yeah, Otis? We're only getting ten percent of what you're saying, man. It, I thought it was just me for a minute there until Scotty I, I, mentioned it. Okay, okay. But, uh, I'll leave it there. I can hear we. It's like you last for about a sentence or two, and then it goes off for two seconds, and it comes back. Maybe it's just where you're standing. You know what I mean? Like, can you stand on the roof? Can you hold like the antenna on the roof and just stand up there? <laughs> I'm just joking with you, Otis. Now you, Max, you you mentioned. I heard Jenna mention something about a video. Yes, I put the link in our chat room there on our Uber conference line. Is it uh, the first right one? Because the, there's a uh, number of links. It's the second one up. I, I think Otis has one just below me. So mine's just a YouTube video. You see okay. there. Okay. So play as much as you like, Scotty. You don't have to play the whole thing through. Uh, when you feel you heard enough. And then we'll open up the lines, and Jenna can say what he has to say as well. Well, it's only five minutes long, so I, you want me to play the whole thing? That's cool. Uh, let's go with it right now. See what happens. Okay. Clip, I just want to tell you real quick, we got a new audio network. Go to tyt.com slash audio and get all of our new podcasts. A new investigation by uh, TYT reporters finds that uh, some of our representatives have been investing huge sums of money into the private prison industry, which uh, should concern everyone, considering the fact that they are our lawmakers and they decide on legislation and policy that could either uh, benefit these very for-profit prisons or uh, impact American citizens. So according to recent data, Representative Greg Gianforte from uh, Montana had invested $100,000 uh, into uh, Core Civic, which is one of the massive for-profit prison corporations in the country. So it was somewhere between $100,000 and $250,000. And he uh, bought that stock on January 29th of this year. One month earlier, he had actually unloaded Core Civic stock in the same value range. So uh, that's interesting. And remember, the stock prices of Geo Group and Core Civic have gone up because of Trump's zero tolerance policy. Now, you need, uh, if you have uh, inc crazy laws pertaining to immigration and you want to prosecute and detain every person who tries to come into the country, well, then we're going to need beds, you're going to need places to detain these people, and private prison companies are like, me. Yeah. I'll do it. In fact, uh, Core Civic had its best year on record uh, regarding contracts. According to uh, this TYT Investigate story, they uh, brought in $135 million from just ICE contracts. So um, they're getting rich, and so are their shareholders, like Congressman uh, Jim Forde. In fact, the picture of him that you saw was his mugshot. So uh, I don't know if he actually went to one of his own private prisons. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course he not. Did. Right. Uh, I kid around about not knowing about he it. Assaulted he assaulted a reporter and lied to police about it. Yep. Now uh, he he body slammed the reporter. 
Uh, and if you had done that, you'd have gotten a uh, actual prison and maybe a private prison at that. Uh, but since he's powerful, in fact, the sheriff that took that nice mugshot of him was a donor of his. So uh, they take it nice and easy on him. He got community service, a $380, $385 fine. Everything's fine. I'm sure that he already made up that money from the stock gains that he got from the private prison industry. Yeah. Uh, and Core Civic also operates the only private prison in Montana, his home state. So think about how corrupt that is. So you have people making laws that make money if we fill up private prisons. So what does that give them an incentive to do? Pass laws that'll fill up private prisons. Now, those prisons can get filled up by sometimes undocumented immigrants, and whether it's the right policy or not, or we want to separate them from their kids. By the way, if you keep them with their kids, you can't put them in a detention center for longer than 20 days. If you separate them from their kids, you can put them in detention centers for months and months and months, and then GM Forte makes more money. A lot of these are uh, people who invested in the private prisons or get donations from them. And by the way, he also gets donations from the same group, right? right. They, get, they get rich in a lot of different ways from these guys. So, but not just undocumented immigrants, but also U.S. citizens. A prison's a prison. So, I mean, that's the whole reason why for-profit prisons came about in the first place. It was in the 1980s, mid-1980s, 1984 to be specific, and I'm not kidding, um, where these private prison companies realized, hey, we could make a lot of money off of this prohibition of drugs. At that time, lawmakers were passing legislation and really cracking down on people who had possession of marijuana. And so... Uh, state prisons, uh, the local prisons were just overflowing with offenders. And so they needed more beds. And they're like, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to go ahead and open up a private prison industry. And by the way, even though it's called a private prison, don't be fooled into thinking that it's privately funded. It might have investors, but it's overwhelmingly subsidized by taxpayers. Yeah. All right, Max, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. There's about a, uh, two more minutes left, but I'm going to leave it there. I do want to quickly issue a correction uh, to TYT. And I discovered this when we went to Washington, D.C. for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. And I saw a marker in Washington, D.C., noting one of the first private prisons built in that area, and this was in the 1800s. So it's incorrect to say the private prison industry uh, was born in the 1980s. It might be more accurate to say it exploded in the 1980s, but there were private prisons back in the 1800s possibly wanting to take advantage of the convict leasing program, which we'll talk about in a later um, um, segment. Max? I think she may, I'm sorry, I think she may have been uh, thinking about 1984 when Ronald Reagan brought in the the return of people being able to own other people through for-profit prisons. And I believe it was a woman's prison in Louisiana that was the first one to get a contract. And that was in 1984. But there was a private prison in the 1800s in Washington, D.C. They always been around. Uh, But if I remember correctly, they got phased out along with uh, convict leasing allegedly in 1928 when Alabama was the last one to uh, allegedly abolish convict leasing. And then they moved on to what we know as Unicor in 1954. 
So uh, maybe that was all part of it. You know what I mean? And Unicor is a private corporation, which we have talked about before, that is owned by the corporation known that I call USA Inc. The U.S. government's operating its own private prison, and they make products. They make products that get sold to the public, to other companies, and what have you. So I, I just wanted to issue that correction, but I'm glad they mentioned that these private prisons don't just, because again, for some reason, there are certain Americans among us who seem to not be empathetic towards these uh, uh, refugees being thrown into converted Walmart super centers. Uh, I read an article the day before yesterday about an office building where they were keeping some of these children. Then you have non-profits in the non-profit industrial complex who are also profiting from this, getting paid to sign up as so-called sponsors the for these th- yeah. The individuals who are taking these children into their houses and taking care of them and the adoptees who are just waiting to get their hands on one of these immigrant children that can't find their parents. You know, I believe there's like 50 of them right now that they say is, cannot find their parents and won't be able to find them. So they're going up for adoption. So everybody's got their hands in here, even down to the individual who is making $30,000 a year or $20,000 a year housing two or three of these children. And you know, uh, he hasn't called in in quite some time, but Rob from Milwaukee shared with us that he was housed in uh, a geo group facility and over the years. So again, all I'm trying to say is, is that it's all connected. Um, Of course, we know it started with preying upon the African-American community. And now, you know, it's, it's being expanded to include refugees who are fleeing, you know, very dire straits in their home countries due to U.S. foreign policy and and drug cartels and what have you. And then that money, as we've reported over the years, you know, those private prison companies will even write legislation that they will get their own politicians in their pockets to then pass that legislation that will affect American citizens. So, you know, we have to, as Malcolm X said, we have to look at ourselves as human beings. And we have to look at these victims as human beings. And 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 what, like, you know, Dr. King said, an injustice to one is an injustice to all. So I just want to leave it at that. Now, I know Jenna said he wanted to comment after the video. Jenna, go ahead. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. We can hear you. All right. Uh, greetings once again to uh, the host and the callers. Uh, to give my background noise, I'm outside away from my uh, my family. Uh, some of you who have sensitive uh, hearing devices, y'all can hear one of my children whining about something that doesn't matter. It matters to her, but in the big picture what we're talking about it doesn't matter so that's why I'm outside uh, so excuse the background noise once again uh, my my focus is is that with, with what we played excuse me what y'all played on the uh, video these uh, TYT I believe that's what they call themselves the Young Turks uh, dot com 
They yes. have uh, they have things that's going on. I'm not saying that's for us. I'm not saying that that's against us. But recognize that these people have things that's going on that does not involve us. Agendas. It's our agendas. It Max. I think that was that you, Max. Yes, uh, I've written exactly. about that on a number of occasions about these private media companies suddenly getting twenty million, fifty million, who have private agendas working for someone else's agenda, and these particular. This particular media source, the Young Turk, pushes the envelope, but they refuse to go past it. And I've heard them call this slavery exactly. on a number of occasions, but they don't stick to that. They quickly change right back to something they can fix. Well, well one of the things that, that goes along with that is that what a lot of us don't know, although they do bring out a lot of valid points, they still are recognized as white citizens whether they are from this place, that place, or another place, they are still recognized as white citizens, and therefore they can walk around and still get the benefits of that white status that they have commandeered. We, as as melanated people, as black people, we don't have that uh, accommodation. And I wanted to wait after the uh, the program was played that video to address the caller that was prior to me because all of that sounds great. It, it sounds great. And a lot of us, uh, when I say a lot of us, I mean like people, we don't have the time nor the resources to do the things that he says that they are doing but the fact of the matter is that they could turn that off at any time and go back to being a white citizen uh, just yesterday I was uh, I was absent from our show uh, Real Life that comes on at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time I was absent from that show but they talked about this same exact thing. And Brother Scotty, uh, Brother Tag, that comes on to this show periodically, they, Brother Scotty, Brother Roz, Brother Tag, they all went into this same dimension of situation, meaning that even though we have uh, lower-class white people who have nothing, have nothing to grasp a hold of, outside of the fact that they are not black. They went into that very deeply. I was absent on that, but I have been given a second chance. Uh, shout out to my uh, to my ancestor. I'm a choice to where this, this is even being available for me to even uh, give a comment on. But these type of things, the way you say what you're going to do, and, and the previous caller even said that he hadn't done it, but he's going to make sure that he's going to do it. We deal with these same type of things all of the time. That's not a bash on the uh, previous caller, but this is something that we get used to. It's, it's good that you notice these type of things 
and that it's going on. But when are you going to、uh, put action to your words? Okay, Jenna, let, let me just step in. Jenna, can you hear me? Let, let me step in.、Um, yes, sir. That, that's why I stopped. Okay, let, let me step in there. I hear, I hear what you're saying, but that d o n t apply to Greg. Greg has been a supporter of the black. No, no. no. Hold, hold, hold on a second, Brother Scotty. I'm not, I'm not saying that it applies to Greg. I'm just saying, as, as a generalized,、uh, as a generalized I, can't, I can't even come up with the words right now, but as a generalized、uh, comment, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not shooting nothing towards Greg per se. I'm just saying that this happens quite often. That, that we w a s going to get to that, but we couldn't because. And, and that happens with us.、Uh, like I just said, just yesterday,、uh, I was supposed to be on the call, but I had a whole lot of stuff that just drugged me down. I've been in a,、uh, I've been. I don't want to say the sunken place because the sunken place has been identified with this、uh, Get Out movie to where I couldn't say nothing at all. So I don't want to identify it with that, but I was just so wore down because I, I fight this fight so much, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at home, or whether I'm out at the park with my children. I go through these things. So it's not a shot at him individually. I'm just saying that these things happen, and more times than not, you, people say that we kind of overlooked it for a little bit, but we're going to get at it, and it never, it never ends up materializing. So I'm not, I'm not shooting a shot at him, Brother Scotty. By no means, I would come on your. To, uh, your show and disrespect any of the guests. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is, is that it's a lot of people that maybe Greg, to, since you told us what his name was, maybe Greg, a lot of people that he deals with, all of us deal with people on an individual basis. All of us do. Whether we're、uh, we receiving from, something from them. Whether we are、uh, giving them something or maybe we are just giving them a little piece of our brain as we pass through life. They understand what's going on. Vicariously. They don't have the time vicariously. Correct,、yes. Brother Matt. They're、Mac. connected vicariously. It's why But,、uh, Greg but, drove us to the Millions for Prisoners March. He drove us all the way there. The white guy drove the car so we wouldn't have any issues. I'm thinking that's why he did it, basically. And drove us all around Washington, D.C. When you, when you say that, Brother Max, I, I, got a, I, got a,、uh, I got a picture of who he is because y'all put up pictures to be able to see who's actually active in this particular fight. I do this same thing here in my city, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know what I'm saying? I go by, I, I, I haven't posted any of those things up because I don't take no microphone. I just go and I just ask people questions. And then what I find out is that people find out what I call myself. They send me,、uh, what you call it, messenger messages to let me know that 
they don't feel how the other people feel and that they are working towards this. And it's awesome. And like I said, it goes back to the show that Brother Rise held by itself because I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I just had to listen to the playback. But they, some of them people go out and they, and they, uh, they activate what they learned, but then you have the other people who don't activate what they learned, but they take it back and they figure out a way to uh, go against it. So we have to be mindful of all of these situations. Once again, Brother Scotty, you know I wouldn't disrespect you. You know that. I will call you and tell you Man. that. Hey, hey, hey. I disagree with you saying. All right. Say again. I, uh yeah, but I but Jen, no, that I think that was Otis uh that was chiming in. Um oh, okay. I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to the podcast last night, but one of the things that one of the things that we pointed out is that the gatekeepers come in many forms, many colors, many sizes. Yes, sir. And what have and what have you, and so you know the young Turks, ain't got a problem with with them reporting what they reported, okay? What they reported is factual. Then nobody else reported. We got the information from them, right? So the information is what it is, and so all I'm saying is the color of their skin, their background, their religion don't matter to me. Um, that other stuff that Max talks about in terms of them getting $20 million and then not hiring all the reporters that they were supposed to, to, I, I, you know, I don't, I choose, I don't want to go down that road because that takes the focus off of what we're here for tonight. Can I speak real quick? Yeah, but what you saying, brother Scotty is, is exactly what I'm actually saying. Okay. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, you personally know my living arrangements, Brother Scotty. That's not an issue with me. It's not an issue with me whatsoever. What a, what the issue is is that when you use that as a means to get these votes, uh, I, I texted you earlier because uh, everybody was, you know how big Tando following is. We had a conversation on Tando. I text you to say, hey, are you doing a live show? Because we, we're doing a thing on Tendo. And we had a conversation, uh, not based off of that, but we, we had a conversation. And one of the things that I was saying is, is that propaganda, from my understanding, is why you started uh, Black Talk Radio Network. We have to be able to put out propaganda that relates to us because truth be told and a lot of listeners may not like this but a lot of listeners that listen to BTR radio or new abolitionist radio don't know about none of the news that's going on because they whether they don't have time to check it out or they don't care because they feel what they care about and what they vote about does not have a need in today's society. And that's where I appreciate you because you come through and you say that it does. 
I myself personally, before I listened to y'all, I was not paying attention to the uh, 13th Amendment. Now, I, that's part of my everyday conversation. As a matter of fact, that's part of my initial conversation. It becomes that, a part yeah, of who you Yeah, how you, how you doing such and such and such? Like, hey, when do you think slavery ended? You know, that, and that's part of my everyday initial conversation. Yeah, such and such. I'm, I'm Jenna. How are you? Such and such. When do you think uh, slavery was abolished? Well, it never was abolished. Hey, Jenna, and, you, and then you're we right, go on brother. From that. Yes, sir. My, let's, my let's try to keep this I'm brief because I, I still I want to hear what uh, Otis has to say. And also, I want to come to of a course. conclusion on the, the, the topic that we were discussing in regards to these uh, government officials who actually own stock, personal finances invested in for-profit private prisons. So if you don't mind, you want to wrap it up? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, as far as the uh, politicians, I personally, and I could be wrong, I don't think they have no bearings about if anybody cares about that or not. I personally don't. I'm from I'm from Tennessee. And and I have met some of the uh, the governors and the senators, and when I bring that up to them, that's nothing that they want to talk about. I don't know how that uh, amounts to the uh, the other fifty states around the country, but they don't want to talk about that. And once you bring it up, you either get shut out or you get shut down. And when I mean shut down, that means that you done said something that offends them that could land you in one of those uh, county jails, if not the private prisons that we are talking about right now today. With that being said, I put myself on mute. If y'all could do the same thing, thank y'all for y'all time, allowing me to speak. I appreciate y'all, brothers. I love this show. I'll talk with y'all later. Peace. All right, peace, brother. Hey, Otis, you said you you had something you wanted to say as well. Well, yeah, I just I'll try to keep it short and sweet because uh, I wanted to let you get back on track. What I was trying to say before, when I wasn't coming across real good, is I actually have a couple of articles from from 2011, 2012 that speak on the very same thing he's talking about. These congressmen actually made a concerted effort to roll back a bill that Obama put out in 2013. And uh, Scotty brought it up. The stock. Uh, that was stock 2012. Act. Yeah, well, 2012 is when the legislation was going through, but I pulled up an article to show Obama actually wrote a bill into law in 2013. And then, because the Republicans controlled the House, they actually redid that under unanimous, unanimous consent using, so without a quorum and cut out a lot of those provisions. And what they did is made it, instead of being public domain for you to find out exactly what these congressmen were doing, it's now in the basement of Congress and you have to have a special request to go down and see their released information. So all they did was hide the ability You're to find about the out investments, exactly Otis. which stocks they're involved in. Okay, thank you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you know, let, let me close it out because we are like 10 minutes over for our break. But uh, let me close it out by this. Earlier today, I brought up the fact that William, not William, I'm thinking about the actor, John Shatner or Papa John talking about in his hometown, 
they used to drag African Americans to their deaths. Well, those are open murder cases then. And that there should be some outrage about that. And I'm not hearing any outrage from the from the, um, you know, civil rights organizations that are supposed to be focused on these other things, nor any members of Congress calling for Jeff Sessions to interview this guy and investigate. So it was said to me that, well, you ain't going to get nothing done with Jeff Sessions and Trump in there. Okay, now. That kind of goes to what Jenna was saying about these politicians not wanting to hear something, want to shut you down. Well, to me, telling me because Trump is in office, ain't this, that, or the other ain't going to happen. It's no excuse for me to sit on sidelines and be quiet about it. Frederick Douglass, our great abolitionist ancestor, said that power can seize nothing without a demand. So if they don't hear you the first time, if it's just me by myself, well, maybe I need to bring a crowd with me to confront that politician. Maybe I need to pester him and basically stop, stop, stalk that person, show up at every town hall, constantly be on the phone, getting others to do, to do the same. So just because people don't, we know that they don't want to end slavery. They ain't never wanted to end slavery. But that cannot dictate our actions on whether or not it's going to be ended. That's all. Well, indeed, you want to take the break, Scotty, or and then come back and uh, I'll give my final points on this and go into the next section? Yes, sir. We only got about 10 minutes to cover everything after that. All right, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with our late break right here at blacktalkradionetwork.com. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm going to drop in the final word on the content that we were just talking about in regards to for-profit prisons and government officials being able to own uh, stocks to own personally with their own money to own stocks in these for-profit prisons. First of all, you you understand that this is a conflict of interest in the highest order. It's ethically wrong. It's morally wrong. All of those things. I mean, there's certain situations you can put into place. And it doesn't matter who gets into that position. The position itself has a level of corruption. And that's what you allow when you have, uh, for instance, an attorney general who is not the first to actually own stocks in for-profit private prisons. Alberto Gonzalez, along with Dick Cheney, were both indicted in Texas, in Wallace County, uh, for their roles in for-profit prisons and the murders that were happening within those prisons. The vice president at that time had $80 million invested in the Vanguard Group. And the Vanguard Group, along with Pershing LLC, is two of those giants who wash and launder all of this blood money and then spread it out across the globe. Uh, For instance, right now, Jeff Session has as much as $115,000 worth of shares in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Now, the Vanguard Group invests in for-profit prisons, so that means that the Attorney General will literally make money if the crime or the arrest rates, the incarceration rates, go up. That is unethical. I mean, imagine if somebody like David, uh, Sheriff David Clark, while he was the sheriff of Milwaukee, 
actually owned stock in the very same jails that he was sending people to in a city where more than one in two black men are expected to go to prison. I mean, can you see how wrong that is? So I just want to close it out with that. This is absolutely wrong and something's got to be done about it. And I know we have people who are in politics that listen to New Abolitionist Radio. Here's something for you to work on right now. If we can get that done, that will really solve quite a few problems. Scotty? Yeah, we wouldn't even be discussing this if Barack Obama had uh, made the announcement, which he never followed through on, that they were no longer going to use private prisons and issue those contracts. If he did that in 2012, private prisons wouldn't even exist because they'd have been out the market. They would have been, because that's where, that's where, like you mentioned, Max, it's not, it was either you or Greg that mentioned it. It's not, this isn't private money. It's not, uh, it's us as taxpayers. They're getting all the money through the government. That that is their number one customer, U.S. Gov. That's their customer. Yeah. And if if Barack Obama in 2012 had made that announcement, instead of waiting to the last month of his presidency, then the stock market would have eliminated private prisons for us, and and it would probably wouldn't even been no need for. Well, I still would have said we still need to pass. The Justice is Not For Sale Act 2016. And that was a monumental bill. Okay? And, but I didn't hear the Black Political Caucus championing that bill. I didn't hear the Hispanic Caucus championing that bill. I didn't hear the quote-unquote Freedom Caucus championing that bill. And who knows if it'll ever be reintroduced again. You know? Um, But it's certainly not going to be reintroduced or so none of these problems are going to get solved if if we remain quiet and we don't put actions behind our words and so you know I, I just call on every person who's hearing the sound of my voice you got to get involved get in where you fit in but this problem is not going to solve itself um, one of the things that we shared earlier and it's also the cover image for today's program is a memo that came out from the U.S. Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and it was on January 24, 2018, that the uh, Corrections Program Division Director F. Laura said that they uh, would be concentrating now on increasing population levels in private prison uh, contract facilities. So that's their goal as of January 24, to increase the number of people that they keep in these for-profit private prisons. And they're spearheading at that with the uh, what we're dealing with right now in the immigration system. It's like a well-planned out oiled machine. You know what I mean? Like this is where they're going with it and we all see it and they play stupid. But anyway, Scotty, I want to bring in the second part of our story. I only have a few minutes to discuss it. So there's, I put together a lot of research today. So I'm pleading with the listeners Make sure you become a member of BTR community where you can see all of the planning page and all the information that goes along with it, all the research that brings us to these stories and conclusions uh, so you can see it for yourself. So make sure you become a member of that and also follow us on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook where we put out everything that we're talking about piece by piece. What we're going to talk about now 
is Sugarland, Texas. Sugarland, Texas recently dug up 95 bodies that belong to victims of convict leasing in Sugarland, Texas. Uh, I'll read some of that story to you now. It says that Sugarland, Texas, nearly 100 graves found at school construction sites in Texas are believed to be the remains of slaves. Crews were building a technology center in Sugarland, Texas, when they discovered the bodies. It's huge. It's unprecedented, said Rain Clark, an archaeologist, archaeological project manager. This will change our understanding of the convict labor system that was used all over the state. More than a century after their deaths, the abuse was still obvious. You can see it in the chains they wore and the tools they worked with. When you do activity over and over and over again, and you're doing heavy labor, it will actually stress the attachments where the muscles are attached to the bone, and it will actually leave marks and actually change the shape of the bone, said Katrina Banks-Whitley, a bioarchaeologist. And so we're seeing a lot of evidence that shows they were doing very heavy labor from probably a very young age. All of the 95 bodies appear to be male, age 14 to 60. They were most likely part of a convict labor camp. And this is a story in regards to the bodies found in Sugarland, Texas. Uh, that's the first part of this conversation. Scotty? Scotty said go on. He had a coffee break. <laughs> okay, thank you, Otis. All right. Well, I was like, wow. You hear a story about this. A camp with a hundred bodies in a mass grave who were victims of convict leasing. And you know, I've read the story of the book One Dies, Get Another by J. Mancini, uh, where he said that uh, the only difference between slaves, slavery, and convict leasing was with criminals so plentiful they were seen as disposable. And this was it, and with an explanation point at the end, a hundred bodies right there. So I said, Wow, I bet you this didn't just start that if they were doing this and they had mass graves, I bet you there's a bigger story surrounding this city called Sugarland. First of all, the words Sugarland gives you an indication of what they were involved in. And I found a, a, a lot of stories about that. For instance, this is called How the City of Sugarland, Texas, got its name. A century ago, the area was ruefully known as the Hellhole on the Brazos hellhole on the Brazos by the prisoners who worked the Imperial State Prison Farm where untold numbers died from sickness and infrequent and spoiled food rations if they failed to meet their quotas or broke a rule they were beaten starved, whipped or relegated to a darkened cell for days on end after emancipation a loophole in the 13th amendment retained legal slavery for those who'd been duly convicted of a crime in 1867, Texas began leasing out its convicts to labor for private companies, and former plantations across the state were transformed into prison farms. The vast majority of the men and women who toiled on them were African Americans, either the children of slaves or former slaves themselves, who came from states like Arkansas and Louisiana, as well as from across Texas. With the uh, postbellum Texas economy in shambles and the basis of its political econ economy now illegal, archaeologist, historical anthropologist Dr. Fred 
uh, McGee said, this was no coincidence. How are you going to take almost 5 million human beings who were previously in bondage, who have no interest whatsoever in working on plantations where they were enslaved, and basically forced them into involuntary servitude. McGee asked, how, it's, how are you going to compel them to labor you for you? This is how it was done. And that's Sugarland, Texas, where 95 bodies were just found. That's how they got their name, Sugarland, because they had these plantations all over them. And the biggest plantation of all was called Imperial Sugar. They were one of the leading sugar distributors in the entire country. And the city was built up around that company, Imperial Sugar, which first used slave labor. And then when slavery was allegedly abolished, but transformed into convict leasing instead, where the state now held the bodies, that is when Imperial Slavery on Imperial Sugar moved to convict leasing. And they worked these men and women to literal death. They didn't feed them. They didn't take care of them. There was no health care. There was no days off. They literally worked people from the ages of 14 up to 60 to death. And when you couldn't work anymore, you ended up in a mass grave with 99 other people that looked just like you. That's Imperial Sugar Company, who just closed their sugar plantation in 2004. If you ever wanted to see a crime against humanity with all the components there, all the proof, and the bodies, and the smoking gun, and the names of the people who did it, the names of people who were responsible for it's all there right now in Sugarland, Texas. Scotty? As I was listening to you read that, just things that popped into my head, um, I do watch films um, to kind of wind down and whatnot. I'm not real big on promoting entertainment. I don't go to the movies. If I can't find it online, I won't watch it. But I was just reminded of Django. Sugarland sounds a lot like Candyland. Candy yep. I thought the same thing when I heard it. And then the scene in there where they was telling Django, we sending you to the mines and you're going to work till your back give out. And then when your back give out, we going to bust you in the head with a sledgehammer and then throw you in the hole. This is going on in real life, people. And this convict leasing, why they don't call it that anymore? What else can we call? What else are these companies doing when they use prisoners? I talked to my, bro my little brother today who unfortunately went to prison for no for a crime that I know he didn't commit and they didn't even present any evidence and 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 said he had been in a shootout with the person house he broke into and the person was shot uh the burglar was shot my brother had never been shot so he was set up for that but anyway I was talking to him about you know the makeup of the employees on these prison plantations because they shipped them around to about five different plantations and then you know i remember he was telling me about working on a turkey farm if that ain't convict leasing what is it then what is it max this stuff is still going on today it's not going on yesteryear it's not going on 50 years ago it ain't you know you got all these different industries that are used, and we talk about Starbucks, you know. Oh, people got upset, and rightly upset, 
and raised a big stink about, oh, you harassing these black men who come in here for a business meeting and and it's like you don't want black face in, in these public spaces. But when we keep saying over and over, and I even said then, that, hey, Starbucks uses prison labor to package his coffee. Walmart uses prison labor to to all those uh, return gifts that you take back to Walmart. Well, those got to be repackaged. Guess who repackaged them? When we report to you that, you know, McDonald's use contractors that, that um, you know, they get their utensils from are made by prison labor. This is all throughout American society and in American industry. But there just seems to be no outrage about it, even from the people that it impacts the most. That's what really bothers me, man. There's a graveyard in uh, Sugarland, Texas, called the Imperial Cemetery, a prison cemetery. It was owned by the Imperial Sugar Company. That is a bigger mass grave than the one that we're talking about right right now today. It's the same thing. They own the prison. <laughs> like, the sugar company owned the freaking prison where they were able to exploit convict leasing. And it's so shameful right now that we have all the archaeologists and all these experts who have already written about Sugarland, Texas, and talked about how they exploited these people. And here we are today, just a couple of days ago, finding 95 bodies, the evidence of the brutal crimes right there. If you really want to hold anybody accountable, this is a hell of a place to start right here with all this history laid out clearly with everybody included uh, in that history. I mean, it's a hugely affluent and wealthy area. And it's because of this sugar company called Imperial Sugar, which used slavery and then used convict leasing, that all of this money is there in that town. And it started with 19 slaves. That is what they started with in the very beginning. 19 slaves. The descendants of those enslaved Africans would be extremely wealthy right now if they had access to the... Uh, Profit well, sharing if they were their work. Yeah. That's a crime against humanity, and it happened in Sugarland, Texas. And when you stop looking at Sugarland, start looking at every city USA because you'll find it all over the place. Yes. If it's in Sugarland, Texas, like that, imagine Alabama, imagine Louisiana, imagine Virginia, imagine any of these deep South Tennessee, Mississippi places where they loved what they were doing. And another thing it reminded me of when you was talking about the bodies, it reminded me of Florida's correction system that so many inmates are being killed or dying in prison that they had to throw up a website for people to find out if they loved one still alive or not. Do you remember that story? Yes, it was 350 some odd names on the list that they had to provide because it wasn't just deaths. It was people who had died in questionable circumstances, often associated with guard violence. And we it like, ain't got no better either. Right. It hasn't. It hasn't. And matter of fact, speaking of Florida, Rick Scott, you know, he's up for a re-election and he's gearing up to run again as uh, for a Senate. I think he's seeking a Senate seat this time. And um, guess who? Florida-based GEO Group is definitely helping them with his war chest. You know, 
when slavery was allegedly abolished and then replaced by convict leasing, the number of people who were being enslaved reduced dramatically. That was Lincoln's proposal, that he would rather see it restricted because they thought it was wrong. He didn't get rid of it. He restricted it. So they brought it down to this uh, much lower number, but it was still people who were being enslaved and exploited. And this one company, uh, Imperial Sugar, with just 19 slaves, 500 heads of cattle, 30 mules and horses, 15 yoke of oxen and a herd of hogs, started something that created uh, immeasurable wealth to this day. You know, Max, to this day. going back, uh, um, when you mentioned Lincoln again, in his letter to George Stevens and saying, oh, you, you, th- you, we think it ought to be restricted. Again, who is the we? I would like to know who he's talking about because he wasn't talking about Frederick Douglass. He definitely wasn't talking about the victims of pre-1865 slavery. He wasn't talking about John Brown and his sons or any of the many abolitionists we have profiled on this. And you know what? That's what we actually got with the 13th Amendment. It's a restriction on slavery. Yeah, that's what it was, a restriction on slavery, more streamlined, more effective now, and the state in complete control of it. And that's how it is today, with the state in complete control of it. Um, I mean, there was a time when there was about 90,000 people who were involved in convict leasing, most of them African-Americans, okay, or people of African descent. Now, there's close to a million people who are also working in prison, 10 times more than there were today. I mean, when they were there. And many still don't see that as a crime against humanity. But even the labor force that they provide with 10 times the number that built uh, Sugarland, Texas, uh, that's still not their main income, the prison profiteers. Their main income comes from you, the taxpayer, because we all pay our taxes and they take that money and charge, uh, they'll give a prison $30,000 a head for every person they got. They'll give a youth detention facility 150, 200,000, 300,000 per head for every person that they've got. It's, it's just warehousing bodies. The labor is gravy. That's extra money. They're going to make their money if you just lay on a damn steel plank for 30 years. Warehousing, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, warehousing bodies. Hey, hey. And then you necessarily don't need the bodies because for some reason, state legislatures will give them contracts that say, hey, even if the beds are empty, we still going to pay you as if you were filled 90% capacity. Yes, and that is called the low crime tax. And it was part of the contractual agreements with many of these states like uh, Colorado and in Arizona, where those in Arizona are guaranteed 100% occupancy for 25 years straight. And if any of those beds are not filled, the taxpayer is liable to pay for those absent bodies that are not in beds. And as a matter of fact, they've already sued Colorado for that. Hmm. Well, again, I would like to tell our listeners that there's a lot of research behind this. There's a lot of stories you didn't get to see, a lot of stuff that's connected. If you go to our planning page, you can see all of that. And for researchers or people in politics that want to take up this cause about holding the people of of uh, Sugar Land, Texas, accountable for their crimes against humanity, then you've got a lot of information to start with right there. 
Max, you want right, to take Scotty. A, yeah, you want yes. to take our break. Yes, uh, we're going to take a quick station identification break, and when we come back from the other on the other side, we'll do uh, a couple of quick stories and then our final segments. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, right on the right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back after these messages. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio, since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Scotty Reed, was there any stories that you wanted to get out there uh, while we had an opportunity um, this week? I, nothing comes to mind right now, Max, um, except to say that um, if you would take this opportunity to mention the upcoming prison strike. Uh, yes, as I stated in the beginning uh, of our program and have been doing now for about two months, there is a upcoming prison national prison slave labor work strike being organized inside and outside. To the best of my awareness, as of now, there are 17 states involved. In 2017, there was 24. We would hope that we get about 30 plus this year. They're asking all prisoners or anybody in detainee, any detainees, or if you're in jail, do not work, do not do anything, whether it's make your bed or answer a phone call in a factory for AT&T. You don't do anything from August the 21st through September 9th the anniversary of the Attica Uprising. Also, you can find information on that also on our uh, abolitionist planning page at the BTR community. All right, Scotty, there was no stories. uh, Well, there was nothing that was at the top of my list, but there is one that I want to share for sure because it touches us personally. And that's what's happening in Asheville. As you know, we had a guest just not too long ago, uh, Sharon Smith and Dolores, who uh, out of Asheville had helped put into effect a law that requires that police now get written consent before they can search you. So it really puts a break on a lot of what they were doing. But apparently now in Asheville, the city council has voted to allow the Justice Department and the police department to investigate black activists and this is from the citizens times uh dolores just contacted me recently like said they done out and said it now that i'm under investigation and uh let me get through this crap that they give you before you have to uh where you can look at the damn story and now they're trying to sell me you uh hulu Okay, uh, Scotty, I got to pull this story up. It's going to take me a second because the internet is giving me a hassle. And uh, there we go. All right, Asheville. Two years ago, after the fatal uh, police shooting of a local uh, black man ignited a summer of racial tension, police launched an intelligence operation to monitor the efforts of two civil rights groups. A Citizens Time investigation has found Asheville Police Department Chief Tammy Hooper authorized the monitoring of Black Lives Matter and showing up for racial justice in response to what she said were threats to officers 
after the shooting of Jai Jerry Williams by a white police sergeant. The group's organizers said they were unaware of any threats made by their members to harm police. Their groups worked to raise awareness about racism and get more equitable treatment for minorities, they said. City council members appear to have been briefed on the operation sometime after March 2018, according to statements from the elected officials and police. APD revealed the operation to the Citizen Times in May after questioning. Mayor Esther Mannheimer said city council isn't allowed by the city charter to get involved in day-to-day police operation and that it's APD's job to devise legal strategies to keep the community safe. It would be my expectation that the department utilize information gathering practices typically of any police department that keep them one step ahead of any potential danger to our community. Community, Manheimer said Monday, then asked when asked for her reaction to the operation. Police officials, however, however, have declined to answer most of the Citizen Times questions about the operation, including whether officers monitored the organizations openly or in any undercover fashion. They also have refused to detail the threats they received. APD has not confirmed the monitoring has ended or said whether a full-blown criminal investigation was started as a result. The Citizen Times gathered tips from anonymous source with knowledge of the monitoring, public records, and police statements over five months to piece together a picture of the operation. The monitoring drew strong criticism from civil rights activists like Black Lives Matter Education Coordinator Sharon Smith, who, after learning about the operation from the Citizens Times, said it made her believe APD's motives had nothing to do with public safety. That's just an intimidation tactic, basically, Sharon said. They are looking for something to hold on us. It's inappropriate. Scotty? Yeah, these are our friends, man. Like people that we know personally, been on a program, we work with on a regular basis, and they're under an investigation openly by the police for nothing but being activists and being black. I'm sorry, Max, you still there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, if you were talk, if you were tossing it to me, I will. I apologize. I was distracted um, at the moment. Yeah, I just think it's it's terrible, man. And you know, I was recently in a conference call, and we were talking about the upcoming prison slave labor strike. And you know, I've been you and I have been right in the middle of this thing always with communications. Like we really don't get enough credit for helping to get this word out there, but we do it. In any case. Um, we talked about what the prisoners are trying to achieve, uh, what type of things they've accomplished so far. Like uh, in Louisiana, you know, they're building an, uh, a media project of their own. They're, they're making their own media outlets and also their own brands of products and things like that to finance their movement. And Florida is working towards getting uh, people who are incarcerated the right to vote while they're in uh, jails and prisons. So there's a lot of things going on with this prison slave labor yeah, that's that's very that's very important. You know, I'm just all pooping out, Max. You know, I'm so sick and tired of hearing about Russia. Although I will try to relay accurate information that's counter to the propaganda that that is being spewed over all the major networks and Russia. This Russia interfered in our elections and all this old crap. 
You know, I'm, I'm just, oh my God, I'm just so tired of it, man. When American, the American government undermines its own election, not just the Dem. I'm not just going to focus on the Democratic Party um, undermining its own primary, but how felony disenfranchisement is a way for them to continue slavery because then, you know, if your primary victims can't vote, even though they're American citizens, then, you know, that just solidifies your hold on power. And yes, it is very important, this movement that we see in various states to to even give prisoners the right to vote while they're in prison because they're still American citizens. Okay, they still American citizens, but the reality is, is the American government looks at them as slaves through the prison prism of the Thirteenth Amendment. So it's kind right. of let's just let's just keep it real on that. But even after you have served your time, so-called paid your debt to society, what's the point of continuing depriving those people of the right to vote? You know, I cannot say this with absolute certainty. I can't say it. But the people I trust have said it to me. And they have informed us that this year, very likely around December, we'll have congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment and its effect on the United States since the uh, it was put out in 1863, uh, September of 1862. And I think that that opportunity for disclosure will not only make a huge change, but it will put all of this on display for the entire world to see and really give us an opportunity to identify the source of our woes and face it directly. I'm really looking forward to that, Scotty. And man, God help them if they let Scotty Reed or Max Parthas get up there and testify in front of Congress. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Scotty, let's get on our last uh, segments here. Our abolitionist in profile and our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Is there one that you wanted to cover, uh, potentially the abolitionist in profile, since I know the last time that we shared him, it was a surprise to you personally? Um, if you don't mind, if you'll start with the rider, I'll pull up the uh, abolitionist in profile and get it after you. Um, all right. Well, today, our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Jerome Johnson. Uh, for 30 years, Jerome Johnson maintained he was innocent of a 1988 killing of a Baltimore man inside the Night Owl Bar. Last week, a judge agreed. Johnson, convicted of murder in the death of Aaron Taylor, was exonerated on July 2nd and set free. He had been convicted on inconsistent and faulty witness testimony, his defense attorneys and prosecutors say. The 50-year-old stepped from the Baltimore Circuit Courthouse downtown hugged his younger brother, and softly thanked his attorneys before a crowd of onlookers. Any ill feelings? He was asked. No, he said. What's the first thing you're going to do, they asked. Get me a home-cooked meal, he said. Johnson has spent his entire adult life in prison. He tried several times to get his conviction overturned. Today marks the first time in 30 years that the criminal justice has worked for Jerome, Sean Ambrose, Executive Director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project said when Johnson's was re Johnson was released, the nonprofit at Chicago Washington University helped set him free. Johnson served most recently in the state prison in Hagerstown 
uh, Maryland, where he woke each morning at 5.30 to pray and work out. Once free, Monday afternoon, after hugging his brother, he shook hands with his three nephews. He looks at it like it was part of his journey, says his brother, Sean Morgan. He's very spiritual. Taylor was killed 30 years ago this month. Witnesses told police that Taylor had been arguing with several men on the street outside of the Night Owl Bar in Baltimore City Park Heights neighborhood. Someone drew a gun and tried to shoot Taylor, witnesses said, but he ran inside. One man followed him and killed him. Four men were charged with the murder, Johnson, Reginald, Dorsey, Alvin Hill, and Thomas Carroll. Jurors acquitted Carroll, but they convicted Dorsey, Hill, and Johnson. Several witnesses placed Dorsey and Hill at the killing. Only one implicated Johnson, the lead witness, a 15-year-old girl. Assistant Baltimore State Attorney Lauren Lipscomb, Chief of the Conviction Integrity Unit, read an account of the investigation in the courtroom. You can read the rest of that story at New Abolitionist Radio. We here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom to Jerome Johnson. After 30 years, brother, welcome to freedom. Welcome to freedom. Max, I'm having trouble finding the abolitionists in profile. I noticed these Facebook uh, photos that, that you in bed don't show up all the time, and perhaps that's why I can't find it. If okay, you, I just dropped it in our uberconference.com chat room. Uh, all right. So you can click it right from there. All right. Thank you, Max. And let me pull that up. Owen Brown. Okay, I know who that is. That's the son of John Brown. Uh, Owen the father Bra- of John Brown. Oh, yeah, his father. I'm sorry. Uh, February the 16th, 1771, May 8th, 1856. Father of abolitionist John Brown, um, Owen Brown was a wealthy cattle breeder and land speculator who operated a successful tannery in Hudson, Ohio. He was also a stout and outspoken abolitionist and civil servant. Brown was a founder of multiple institutions, including the Western Reserve Anti-Slavery Society, Western Reserve College, now Case Western Reserve University, and the Free Congressional Church. Brown gave speeches advocating the immediate immediate abolition of slavery and facilitated the Underground Railroad. One of ten children, Owen Brown was born on February 16, 1771, the Revolutionary War Lieutenant John Brown and Hannah Owen Brown in Torrington, Connecticut. A lifetime admirer of the Founding Fathers, Owen's first memory was of the departure of his father's militia company to engage the British in New York during the summer of 1776. Wealthy Tanner, wait a minute, it's repeating. Um, Give me just a second. Uh, Let me see. Brown served in a multitude of positions in the community, including county commissioner and justice of the peace. Owen was deeply rooted in the abolitionist movement. He was personal friends with leaders such as Frederick Douglass, who often stayed with the Brown family when he was lecturing in the area. Owen, in collaboration with David Hudson, was integral in establishing one of the earliest way stations along the Underground Railroad and personally arranged passage into Canada for many escaped uh, victims of slavery. Owen was a founding trustee of Western Reserve College and is credit for securing 
credited for securing its location in Hudson as well as overseeing the construction of its first building. During Brown's tenure, 1825 to 1835, Western Reserve College became known as a hotbed of abolitionist ideals. After the death of the institution's first president, Charles Backett Stores, in 1833, the university elected a more conservative president, George E. Pierce, in an attempt to distance itself from the politics of slavery. In 1835, Brown resigned his position and joined a large con uh, contingency of faculty, staff, and students of Western Reserve College who moved to Oberlin Co uh, Collegiate Institution, now Oberlin College, where he served as trustee from 1835 to 1844. Brown and others were successful in making Oberlin the first institution of higher learning to admit women and black students. Owen's own daughter, Florilla Brown graduated from Oberlin in 1839. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionist Owen Brown, uh, February 16, 1771, May 8th, 1856. Salute, man. Uh, I was surprised when we first showed everybody that how few people actually knew that Owen Brown was an abolitionist too, just like John Brown. And that's where John Brown got it from. He was raised by an abolitionist. You know, and uh, we're doing that today, raising some abolitionist children. Man. Salute to uh, Owen Brown. Indeed. Well, Scotty, uh, we've got about eight minutes. There is something I want to read as part of my final comments. So if there's anything that you want to have, uh, just want to say for a final comment this evening? Um, yeah, we got less than eight minutes because, you know, uh, the other program, we want to get them started on time. Uh, but I, I really don't have any final comments. I, I, I'm just not feeling, I'm not in a good mental place right now, Max. And I just want to impress upon people that I'm very serious about this abolitionist work. And it just pains me that it after these seven years or six years going on seven, that in our seventh season that, it just hasn't spread, man. It hasn't spread as far and wide as I would like it to have. You would think that if you tell people, especially descendants of victims of pre-1865 slavery, that slavery was never abolished, that that would be the number one priority on their minds and that they would be doing everything in their power to organize and, and fund the movement. And that's just simply not happening. And I get depressed a lot, um, not only about that, but that's very depressing to me. But I do realize that we're not going to get 100% of the population to be a part of the abolitionist movement. So the, the few that we have, you know, we just got to remain dedicated and, and, you know, put in as much work as humanly possible. I leave it at that, Max. Thanks, Scotty. Um, I have a direct connection to slavery, not only through my lineage of family members who were not only enslaved, but also part of the convict leasing and beyond that to what we call today mass incarceration. But I was raised by my great aunt, Grace Brown. Rest in peace. Only mother I ever knew. And she passed away last year. And she was raised by former slaves who had escaped from Georgia and came to New Jersey to start life all over again. That's how close the connection is to me. And I've been studying this thing now for a large portion of my life. So I want to explain to you 
uh, my point of view about what slavery is. Understand what being enslaved means. If you can walk out of your home and look at the sun anytime you feel like it, you are not enslaved or a slave. Although at any moment, you may become one because no one is safe. Slavery is not a nine-to-five job leading you like a carrot on a stick to work harder to pay for things you think you can't live without. Slaves don't compete in open markets any more than horses bet on themselves in Vegas. Yes, the enslaved are under control economically, but only because they aren't allowed to own anything. That is part of the rules of slavery. Keep them penniless, in chains, hopeless, helpless, and ignorant. For slaves in the 1800s, having a book or a dollar in your hand would have gotten the same reaction. You aren't supposed to have either one. Slavery is waking up knowing someone owns your body and can beat, torture, or kill you on a whim. Slavery is not being able to see the light of day even if you wanted to. Slavery has a stock exchange tag like GEO, CEC, or CXW. Slavery is when they kidnap you and then sell you or lease you to someone else for a profit without your input. When they work you like a mule for no pay and then tell you to be grateful for food, shelter, and water. Struggling to buy bread for your starving family isn't slavery, it's poverty. And in our case, almost always controlled poverty which creates a criminal and desperate breeding ground for future slaves. Real slavery includes real chains and real shackles. Anything else is a metaphor. Remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Max, before we close out, man, I love you for that, man. Everything else is a metaphor. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, 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 rise up,